Yeah, on. Hello, nubs. How are you? How are you doing today? Good morning. Did you sleep good? Hey, did you have any cool dreams? Hey, or were they bad dreams and you woke up sad? I'll tell you what, I, no, I, even if I did wake up sad, just the the view of you right now is <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> I mean, for those who can't see, which is all of you, probably good that you can't. T is uh, donning a that orange towel around your neck. It's a blankie. It's a nice. Oh, it's a blankie, fle- fleecy blankie. Yeah. Over the uh, over the zoom, it looks like a towel. I thought maybe you had just uh, you know showered or scrubbed up. No, scrubbed no, up. Never, you know. never, never. I listen. Um, showering's become pretty optional, you know, with this. Uh, work from home business, you know, you can, you can spritz the hair and make it look, you know, sort of good enough. And, uh, maybe a quick brush of the electric razor. And other than that, what, what do you need to do anymore? You know, let's, let's not go too far here and start being hygienic. I've heard many times that, uh, as human beings, we actually, we will wash too much. It's bad for your skin and your hair. So somebody, I didn't real, I didn't learn this until I was like, I don't know, thirty five. But apparently, you're not supposed to wash your hair every day. That it's bad for it. Really? And that's like all I needed to hear. I was like, oh, really? Yeah, because like there's natural stuff that builds up that you want to build up. Well, whatever like, natural stuff builds up in my hair is gross. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna just wash it every day because. Yeah. Are you? But from what I understand now, that dries it out to the point of of not of what you don't want it makes it dry and frizzy. Interesting. Well, we, maybe we should switch the format of the podcast to just giving, you know, cosmetic hygiene and health advice. You know, two twins in a shower that might change the genre. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I think I saw that before somewhere. So totally different. You know, I got a new phone two days ago and it's a flip phone. They're they're like, it's like a full circle. Now they're back back to like flip phones, you know, so it's like a smartphone but it flips right and i tell you what man getting a new phone's hard you have you know you kind of like had one way of doing it before all your settings were right and it's like you get a new phone and it takes like days to get it to where it feels like a friend again you know it's like just weird noises and bleep i got i got the bleeps the sweeps and the creeps you know like and i'm like not <laughs> right. sure how to turn them off and i've got like you know, it's like you got to reset all your notifications. It's, it's been kind of a hassle. I'm not going to lie. That's a, I was actually a couple minutes late for the for the broadcast here. My apologies, but that was part of the reason. As I'm sitting here, kind of like trying to figure this damn thing out. But I think they've gotten the new computer thing pretty down. I mean, you buy a new computer now and you use Time Machine. You you like plug it in for a few hours, and it's like you it's like you didn't get a new computer. Yeah. There's something about the phone that's different. Right. They, they, just the whole like transition process is different. Yeah. yeah. You know? well, we could change it to two twins in a yeah. two twins in technology tech. Yeah. Let, yeah let's so... just do a bunch of offshoot podcasts, two twins in a shower, two yeah. twins in technology, <laughs> you know, 
Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it broadening yeah. It, it. What is what's the business term? Uh, diversification. Yeah, exactly. Our portfolio. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're building. Yeah, the portfolio. We're expanding the platform. Right. I, I don't think the two twins in tech would be that good. I mean, seeing that you know Clay, who just turned nine, knows a lot more than I do about how you know tablets and these things work. So, but anyway, we're not here to talk about tablets. We're here to talk about a band that in a very sneaky fashion has been, you know, doing this for 30 years. Yeah. And did it for a while before this album came out, you know? Yeah. 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 This, this was not the first record by any means. Um, In some ways it kind of feels like a sophomore album, but it, but it really isn't. Um, And we'll get to it, but it's a band with some sneaky longevity. And it's a, it's a band that sort of came from a scene and, uh, and we'll talk about that, a scene known as Madchester. But before we get to that nub, why don't we figure out maybe there's a Madchester band that you've been listening to lately? Maybe so, maybe not. Let's get you round and round. All right, new blaze. Any uh, any strong LPs that you've been uh, absorbing of late? What do you got? Well, I'd like to know if you think it's strong because it's a uh, one of your favorite bands, and that is the Public Image and the I album. Say, I, right. I'd say that is uh, strong to quite strong. I would say, yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it, so you know, not not the first album. Well, the first two albums, I think, you know, those are undoubtedly incredible. But the one I've been listening to is "The Flowers of Romance." So I'd love to know what you think of that one as a Public Image fan. This is the 1981 record. I think it's good. I like their '80s stuff uh, when they got into, you know, stuff that was a little bit more, you know, sort of new wavy and uh, exploring a little bit with, uh, you know, sort of layering and, and keyboard and that sort of thing. I thought that was good pill. But then again, I've, I've kind of thought that every decade and every era is pretty good pill. So, is, uh, is there a bad pill? I mean, you're m- much more familiar uh, with, is there such a thing? Not for me. I, I, you know, I, again, I think they're a shuffle group. I think you can put their entire catalog into a playlist and shuffle it. And really just enjoy yourself. Fascinating, you know, artistic and musical project, you know, and all you got to do is look back. I mean, what's that interview? We always go back and watch with uh, Johnny Rotten and Keith. On, oh, Keith uh, Levine on Keith the Tomorrow Levine. Show. The Tomorrow the, Show. They're Tom talking Snyder. to Tom Snyder. Yeah. And they're explaining how, you know, Pill is not just a band. It's like a business you know and and it's it's great it's it's they kind of backed it up in a way i mean they didn't do films and all these things like they were talking about they wanted to turn it into like apple records i think but musically they've been able to really kind of progress with the times always keeping the pill stamp on it and rotten's just been brilliant at this but being able to shift and modernize and and sort of reinvent themselves uh time after time and i've you know, I've enjoyed personally every era. How about you? You think they ever had a, you think they ever had a lazy period or you think they've uh, been pretty good top to bottom? Maybe mid to late eighties might've been a weaker time, but I think some of it just gets into that. I just, uh, I adore the first two albums so much and love the whole initial aspect of pill. And then I love the last yeah. few. I mean, the, 
I think the last three pill albums have been as good as anything they've made. So, yeah. and how, dude, how lucky were we to be able to see them a few years back, right before the uh, pandemic? Weren't yeah. we able to go see them? <laughs> yeah, right before over at the Masonic Theater. Yeah, it was. They, they were awesome. Yeah, they were for sure. And and I do recommend for people to just for your own mental health, watch as many Johnny Rotten interviews as you can. The guy's just incredible. You know, he's just brilliant. No doubt about it. Uh, still, still to this day, love getting his takes on things. And he's <laughs> absolutely, he's very often dead on, you know, no doubt about it. Second is a soundtrack. Uh, do we need to check with the judges? Does a soundtrack work? Uh, soundtrack works. Uh, so long as it uh, is a uh, good soundtrack and not a crappy one. Good soundtrack, terrible movie. And that is Godzilla from 1998. And uh, th- this was a huge soundtrack. I remember I was working at a record shop when this came out and it was one of the biggest albums of that summer. This had the, the, well, the time puff daddy collaboration with Jimmy page on come with me. It had a cool rage against the machines song. No shelter. It had one of my favorite Jamiroquai songs deeper underground, but the two that really stand out are walk the sky by fuel, which was one of their best songs. And then truly one of the most underrated Foo fighter songs, which is a three twenty. You know, the one that has the strings at the end of it. And it's just beautiful. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I, I, you know, found a buy more, a little more CDs lately because you can find them literally for like 50 cents each and uh, bought that on CD. I, I used to have it back in the day and it's very good. It's got a cover of Heroes by the Wallflowers on it. So, and third, we're going to go with the Gary Newman album. And that is Strange Charm, one of those obscure 80s albums that Newman hates that I still like very much. So, that is what is round and round for me, T. What has been around for you? I got a couple of interesting deals here uh, on the deal. The first is uh, the new Kanye West record, which are just always interesting. You know, whether you like them or don't like them or whatever. This is I Donda. didn't even know there was one, man. What's yep. it called? Donda. D-O-N-D-A. Donda. And, uh, and you don't forget that because the first track is basically a chant of <laughs> of somebody just saying Danda over and over again for like a minute. Um, it's awesome. I, I mean, I, I'm a Kanye guy, so, you know, I think, uh, in fact, we might have to talk about him at some point, but experimental, um, no rules. I just, I love so much of what that guy does musically and production wise. And so check out Danda. Uh, last week I talked about uh, taking in Sunflower by the Beach Boys as part of this reissue box set. and. This week, it was Surf's Up, you know, because this uh, box set was for both. And obviously, Surf's Up has become a very, uh, you know, sort of trendy album to acclaim uh, from them. And and rightly so, because there's a lot of really cool stuff in there. It was a, a pivot point where more of the members and even some outside influences started to get more involved in composition and performance. So it wasn't just Brian, you know, because at this point, Brian was like... Uh, not in the best of places, I think, but uh, it's really good output from them. And uh, an album that does get a lot of notoriety as being something that's very uh, experimental at the time. The band Chimino is my third. They have a new album out. This is, you know, big time, big time festival rock here and probably something you wouldn't like, but but I like. But yeah, I, what is with you in the festival? Right? It's the second week in a row that you've chose a festival rock. Hey, listen, you, know, well, like, you like what you like, huh? Yeah, you're into what you're into. I, I picked Imagine Dragons 
but I don't really like that band last week. I'm just curious. This band I actually do like, and they are pretty festival rocky. I got to admit. So they've got the thumping backbeat that everybody can jump up and down oh, to while okay. they stare at themselves in their phones. Is yeah, that what we, you mean? I mean, give it a listen and let us, you can let us know next week what you think. I, the band Tremino, I, I, I mean, I think you'll, you'd probably hate it, but you know, you never know. You never know with you. The question will be, you know, what do you think of this week's? It's a little bit of a different choice, a little bit of a, you know, a band that I don't know. That, I mean, certainly they had a big single in the U.S. Maybe most people in the U.S. think of them as one hit wonders. But truth is, they are a band that has been very acclaimed and, uh, you know, has partnered with some very interesting people over the years to kind of create some of the experimentation, some of the uh, ambiance and some of the creativity that they've been sort of known for. I know one person in particular that you're quite fond of with the last name Eno. But, you know, the, the sort of, uh, I think the, the main theme of this is a, a band that was sort of starting to come out of the scene of which they started. That was this Madchester scene. And deciding that they were going to take a crack at doing something that was a little bit more commercial and something that was a little bit more for the mainstream. And that was certainly the phase of this particular band at this particular time. And why don't we get right into it here as we talk about the band James. And let's do so with those nerdy deets. You want some dirty deets? Yeah! You want some dirty all right, Nubs. Seven was released on February 17th, 1992. So, you know, we're kind of right in the heart of sort of the onset of grunge here in the U.S. And, you know, this is a point where Pearl Jam has come on and Nirvana has come on. And, you know, bands like U2 and some of those others are starting to go in sort of a different direction one that is sort of more stripped down, one that is more hard charging. James was kind of in the midst of its own kind of redirection of going from something that had been more part of this um, Manchester scene that we'll talk about and into something that was certainly more in the direction of an arena, stadium, you know, mainstream type of an effort. And it's always interesting to me to see how bands decide to go about this when they do, and if it works, and if it lands. Uh, it was their fourth studio album. Now, by many fans and even many sort of casual listeners of James, it sort of is like their second album, uh, particularly in the U.S., because the album before this, which was called Gold Mother, but was actually re-released and remixed and re-recorded. They, I swear there are like six different versions of their first record, and and it was eventually re-released in the U.S. as a self-titled album with that blue cover with the flower on it, which actually was a pretty popular album here and had a single called Sit Down, which was, you know, a huge single for the band that kind of put them on the map. It hit number two in the U.K. So these guys were already in a bit of a rhythm here by the time they were looking to record this next record. And one of the things that's really interesting about James, if you look at their entire catalog, is their production support. They actually released a record just a couple months ago because they're still at it and they're still doing it. And they worked with Jackknife Lee, you know, who obviously was very influential on uh, a, a number of different records within the last, you know, couple of decades. Uh, when you look at Silver Sun Pickups, a band that I love, he did the most recent Modest Mouse record 
coinciding with the most recent James album. He did Red by Taylor Swift. I know one that you're fond of. He did some REM stuff, some block party stuff. So, you know, they've shown over the years uh, and even very recently the ability to partner with pretty innovative and pretty, you know, distinguished producers. And this album was no exception. This was produced by Youth, uh, but his real name is Martin Glover. And what he's notable for is he was the bass player for Killing Joke. He was also in a band called The Firemen. Uh, which is a band where one of his bandmates is this guy named Paul McCartney. So I don't know why he went band by. might be a little, uh, <laughs> a little heavy for the firemen. I think it was more yeah. like two guys figuring things out as they go. Do you ever hear the album? Yeah. I mean, it's terrible. I it's a mess. It, it's a yeah, mess. Yeah. I hate it, but, but it's notable that, you know, this guy, um, you know, first of all, he tells you who actual, who youth actually is. I guess that's his you know nickname or whatever. But, you know, this guy's been, I mean, Killing Joke is pretty influential, uh, pretty acclaimed. And and then obviously the, the albums that, you know, a few albums that come after Seven were produced and partnered heavily with Brian Eno. Uh, Brian Eno really took a liking to James and was very supportive and very collaborative with the band. And Nubs, I know as a, a big prog guy. Um, that's got to be, if nothing else, whether you like the band James or not, that's got to be interesting and noteworthy. Some of this production support they've gotten over time, but certainly their partnership with Brian Eno. There's sort of three bands really in the last 20, 30 years that Eno has just clung to. And it's pretty esteemed company. It's U2, it's James, and most recently it's Coldplay. There's, there's a running theme amongst all those three bands, which is that they're very clearly influenced by, you know, as most of us are even without knowing it, but there's a, there's a space to their music. There's a ethereal sort of feeling to their music. There's a, a curiosity to what all three groups have done in the midst of their careers. There's also a running theme there of the willingness to not be commercial. And I think that you know, as much as I've studied him, I feel like I know him so well. I wish I knew him, but I feel like <laughs> I know. I think he's always gravitated towards that concept. Well, maybe someday, you know, while you're on your date with Kate Bush, Brian Eno will walk in and you guys can all hang out. Well, yeah. You know, Blake really wants to meet Kate Bush. I mean, of course I do too, but Kate, it's really for, it's for the kids, you know, come on, come yeah, to America not, and meet Blake. It's not for you. Yeah. Yeah. If Blake got to hang out with Kate Bush and I got to hang out with, you know, like that would be the single greatest thing to happen in our lives. Brian Eno is one of those guys. I literally just want to sit there and just listen. I ask him about anything and just hear him talk. Sounds like a solid double date. You know, I think <laughs> yeah. and you, you never know. You never know. Yeah. Um, it, well, they, they would partner very tightly with Eno uh, on the album that would come after seven, which was a record called laid, which many in the U S know about super popular, you know, had the, the single laid, which is a little bit of an iconic nineties song at this point. Oh, a strange single. <laughs> strange it's a strange single. single. Well, and, and the other thing, it's a strange that's hit kinda, single, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that's kind of interesting about Laid is, you know, they, uh, they had gone on tour with Neil Young. They actually went on a couple loops with Neil Young. Neil Young must have liked them too. And they were apparently inspired by kind of his ability to strip things down and sort of simplify instrumentation. And when they recorded Laid with Eno, you can sense that. And to your point about it being a little bit of an odd single, part of that is that it's very underproduced and very stripped down. And, you know, had a lot to do with that, but apparently they were heavily influenced by Neil Young on that one. So who knew the addition of 
kind of this horn instrumentation and particularly the trumpet playing of Andy diagram uh, is a big contributor to the sound of seven. I think it's interesting to note how this band started and what they were a part of. So in the sort of early to mid eighties, the Manchester music scene was dominant and sort of continued to be really throughout the entire decade. The front half of the 80s, it was the Smiths, it was New Order, it was the Fall. I mean, very, very influential sort of new wave, early new wave, early pop, uh, really defined the era and really defined what became this sort of club culture in Manchester, England. And, And this sort of evolved into this Madchester era, which was really the back half of the decade. So after you saw New Order and the Smiths and these type of groups that were more a little bit new wave in their approach, uh, you started to see this sort of dance electronica rock type of onset. And this was, you know, Stone Roses. This was Happy Mondays. This was in Spiral Carpets, the Charlatans and James, uh, who were all part of this. This was pretty heavily influenced by ecstasy, that being the drug, not the band, not XTC. But but MDMA, the actual drug of ecstasy. And there were a couple of very notable nightclubs in Manchester that just became um, the Hacienda is one of them, Uh, a a huge piece and a huge catalyst for this scene and sort of the launch of these bands and the launch of this sound. And one of the things that's really interesting related to James is I, I would say they're previous album gold mother and then this album seven i think marked them sort of getting out or at least attempting to get out of this pigeonholed dancey um club type scene and if you listen to their early work you can hear it and getting into something that was a little bit more sort of rock oriented mainstream oriented and and i guess sort of stadium rock oriented so nubs a very peculiar interesting seen here in the late 80s in Manchester that we didn't hear about a lot in the US. I think by this time here you were seeing the onset of a lot of hair metal and a lot of these type of things that were very popular in the US. But here in, you know, good old Manchester in the UK and this is long before Oasis and some of these other bands that sort of were post Manchester, I think in their essence that did get back to stripping things back down. In getting away from this electronica dance club type scene. It's a pretty notable scene uh, here coming out of England. Oasis definitely helped put it on the map for Americans because they'd come over here as people were really fascinated with this new kind of British rock thing that was happening in the mid nineties and talk about the stone roses and the Mondays and a lot of these bands that most Americans had never heard of before. So they were a good gateway drug into this scene. The, the sounds all revolve around a danceability that seems to be the running theme. Now, as this, the, the Manchester scene developed, things became very clubby, very danceable, kind of that strong backbeat, almost like festival rock tea. How about that? Almost like festival rock. It kind of is. Yeah, actually. And then Oasis came along and did this, like, we're going to have the Manchester attitude, but we're rock and roll. And then to your point, that morphed into bands like The Music, who was very heavily influenced by Manchester and brought back that dance element. Yep. 
And so it, it ran for a while without being fully known in the US. And, and I think it's spotty. I mean, I, I, I've never really yeah. been a big Happy Mondays fan. I think the Stone Roses are fairly overrated. I get their influence, but I don't love the records. In Spiral Carpets, too. I mean, some of that's, yeah. a, t- yeah. some of that's a tough listen now, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's a scene that should, that's easier to appreciate than it is to enjoy as, as a lot of music scenes are. What's unique about James is they had a whole different take on the sound than most of the peers that you mentioned. And that was what was cool. It was still a very individualized versus something that everyone felt like they'd fall into, you know, they were always, it's a great point. They were always very original, you know, And, and they never wanted to be sort of part of, I think one genre or one scene or another and a very original experimental group of artists you know and let's talk about them for a second you've got uh, a couple people that are sort of lifers within the band jim glennie the bass player has been in the band from start to finish and i think the original formation was like 1986 or something so i mean it's been a long time uh larry gott who obviously has a, a big hand in composition here um, he was a lifer in the band really until 2015. They all seem to have these side things, you know, like Larry Gott is a designer, a very accomplished designer. And his method of of design as part of his sort of uh, non-musical artistic output is based on the KISS method. You know what the KISS method is, Nub? They use it in business and all kinds Keep of it stuff. simple, stupid. There you go, baby. Keep it simple, stupid. And you can hear that a lot. You know, nothing that James has ever done has been particularly complicated or difficult. You know, they're anything but a prog outfit. They're basically, you know, trying to lay down a simple foundation and then create atmosphere on top of that, which is probably what Brian Eno liked about it, right? It's like, you know, these guys, I mean, Brian Eno seemed to always shy away a little bit from like, okay, you're getting a little too out there with the proggy thing. He was more into simple foundations with really complex atmosphere being placed on top of it. And I think that that was always certainly the approach from James and, and obviously the, impro- the approach musically and non-musically from Larry Gott. Uh, David Bainton Power was the drummer for James and, and you know, was with the band for a very long time. Have you seen him drum nub? He has this move like he has this like thing he does with his drumsticks in a circle as like songs because they do a lot of building of songs and a lot of sort of crescendo stuff. It's actually pretty cool to watch. I don't know if he's a good drummer necessarily, but he's fun to watch. I'll tell you that much. Spoiler alert. We'll get to that a little bit in the wonder stories. I got a good wonder story for James. I don't think you've ever heard. Oh, good. Well, shoot. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, he was a, certainly a real mainstay with the band. Now, he didn't play on the most recent album because Jackknife Lee wanted to play the drums. So I don't know. I guess I guess Dave just got kind of screwed over on that. But, you know, um, Tim Booth is a, is kind of the front man and the vocalist. He's also a very busy dancer, as it turns out, Nubs. This is like one of the things he does. He's a vocalist. And to, to my earlier point about, you know, these guys having these artistic side things. Apparently his is dancing. He, uh, he dances. He's a very busy dancer. Spoiler alert. We'll get to that in the wonder. <laughs> All right. We did not plan this. I swear. No. And also I didn't even know this until, you know, kind of getting ready for the episode. He was in the movie Batman begins Tim Booth. He played one of the sort of like lower tier villains in that movie, but that, that was the Christian Bale. I mean, huge movie in 2005 and Tim Booth starred in the movie so he's a dancer an actor he's done some solo albums 
he's a very interesting artist and a, and obviously a, a vocalist that has a very defined, you know, sound. I think when you hear Tim Booth, uh, whether it's on top of a James song or something otherwise, uh, you know, it's him. And there were a bunch of other players. I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the, the trumpet sound um, is, is certainly a, a big part of this and something that we'll talk about a lot throughout the record that the title of the record seven came from apparently there were multiple reasons it's the number of band members uh the the single that i mentioned earlier that kind of put them on the map sit down entered the uk charts at number seven got its way up to two uh, and when they did top of the pops which at that point if you did that show you had made it they were apparently giving dressing room number seven when they performed on that television program so one of the things that's interesting about it now, and certainly something that you know we grew up with as teenagers nubs, is there's a lot of relevance uh, and references from this album lyrically to the Gulf War. Um, and so there are a lot of themes and a lot of um, concepts lyrically on this record to do with what was existing at the time, which was this Persian Gulf War that both the U.S. and the U.K. were kind of involved with. Right after the record came out, they headlined the Alton Towers. Uh, venue, which is obviously another, you know, sort of notch that you've made it in the UK. And guess who opened for them, Nub? Who opened for them? Public Image Limited. Well, how about that? We got a lot of full circle going on here. Um, and the last thing I'd note, you know, before we get to, because now I'm really excited for Nub's, I, I want to shut up and listen to Nub's wondrous story here, but um, it, it's definitely an album that sort of ha- has had a lot of like oopsie daisy reviews where at the time people kind of said, oh, they've gotten too commercial and they've gotten too mainstream and they've whatever they, they you know, it's a simple minds ripoff or it's a U2 ripoff or whatever. Uh, and, and then recently you're seeing a lot of revision reviews. You know, we've made fun of Rolling Stone and many others for that, but I think one of the things that's interesting about seven is you are seeing a lot of those hindsight oopsie daisy reviews where they're listening to it now and saying, yeah, that was pretty good. Actually, (laughs) if you put aside uh, at the time, many people thinking that they were selling out instead of staying true to their Madchester, you know, roots, and we all know how that worked in the early nineties. Nub, let's get to it, buddy. Sounds like you got a couple in the hopper. Wonder stores. All right, Nubs. When did you uh, when did you meet James? All right. So my James story has to do with one of my early crushes that came from a very sneaky place. Oh boy. T. We had a dad who was very, very cool about taking us to concerts. Very cool. There's the summers of 1992, 1993, 1994, not just the summers, those years. I don't know how many drives he made to Pine on Music Theater and the Palace of Auburn Hills to take us to shows, but it was a ton, right? And like endlessly grateful to him for that because how cool that we got to see all these bands. Now, occasionally, yep. if you remember, sometimes he was unavailable. He's a very busy man, right? So do you recall kind of who sometimes would take us when our dad was unavailable? Uh, I, I believe somebody he worked with would take us from time to time, like uh, maybe his uh, assistant. Exactly. So <laughs> when he was not able to take us 
to shows. Well, I, well, I know where you're going now. <laughs> yeah. One of the people that he would enlist to take us would be his administrative assistants. Okay. KJ. KJ. <laughs> so they become sort of part of the family. You know, I mean, they were just like a vital part of like the operation of our family. Right. And so we, be, we would become very close with them. One of the things that would happen sometimes is if we really wanted to go to a show and he wasn't around to take us, he would enlist his assistant to take us. Well, in this case, his assistant was like a babe. <laughs> like I had yeah. such a crush on her, right? Like she was just super hot. You sure did. You, you would almost freeze up around her. Was, Dude, totally. Totally. And she was really charming and funny and just like, you know, I was 14 years old and it was like, okay, she's like such a babe. I've and, seen her. I don't know. I think I've told you this. I've seen her recently, like within the last couple, like bumping into her place. Still a bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep, I mean, com- yep. completely. Right. In 1994, Duran Duran was having a, a real resurgence. You know, Duran Duran was in a bad place in the late, 80s, early 90s. Well, they put out this, they call it now the wedding album, but Duran Duran put out the Duran Duran album and it really exploded and put Duran Duran back on the map. This was too much information come undone and ordinary world. This was that record. And so they did a a huge tour, kind of a comeback tour for that album. And they came to the Palace of Auburn Hills in 1994. My dad couldn't take us. You couldn't go. I think you were in trouble. I can't remember what happened. But you, you were not probably, able to go. Probably in trouble, yeah. <laughs> there were a series of shows where you were in trouble and couldn't go, so I went. Yeah, our dad knew how to uh, apply the proper punishment whenever I was a shithead. And, you know, eventually realized that if you take the concerts away, then I'll find a way to be good really fast. So. <laughs> yeah, it sent the message, at least for a while, right? So it was me, the babe assistant. And then like the babe assistant's assistant, who is very cool too. So this was a time where like our dad had sort of two assistants. So you and two older chicks. Yeah. 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 And I'm, and I'm at home cause I like <laughs> mouthed off to a teacher or something. Yeah, Great. Right. Great. Exactly. So I'm just like, holy crap, this is like the greatest thing ever. So we realized that the opening act was this band called James. None of us had heard of James. And when you hear that name in the 90s, you're like, is it somebody's name? And so we got there early because, you know, why not? And so we proceeded to see all of James set. And we were like really confused and a little blown away because it was so different. And we were there to see Duran Duran. I mean, we're there to see Rio and Hungry Like the Wolf. And out comes Tim Booth, just like a maniac dancing around the stage to a crowd of people basically saying, what the hell is going on here? And I remember the babe assistant was like ripping on the band the whole time. Oh, and, and the yeah, whole rest of the night. It. Yeah. The whole rest of the night, she referred to James as, as him, as the guy, James, you know, <laughs> I don't think she realizes the band name is she's like, Oh, that guy, James. And she was referring to Tim Booth who was captivating and energetic, but also like sort of annoying. And if you don't like his voice, that stood out too. Yeah. Now they played their set to a rather respectful and polite crowd. I remember when they played sit down because I was like, 
oh, this song. And I still think that. I mean, that what a magnificent song Sit Down is. And they played Laid and like some of these other, you know, and I just remember thinking, wow, that was really unique. And then Duran Duran came out and played a blistering, you know, 15 song set and it was just awesome. New album soon from those guys, by the way, too. Yeah, yeah, which is exciting. So, but a lot of the night was spent talking about James. Babe assistant didn't like him. I didn't really care for them very much. The other assistant was just confused the whole time. But I will say this. They were very memorable. I mean, how many shows did we go to where you see an opening act? And you're like, oh, whatever. I mean, you remember James. And a lot of that was Tim Booth and his stage presence. And then a couple of the songs that really stood out. I remember sometimes I remember uh, Say Something was, was another really memorable oh, yeah. song yeah. that they played during the show. Good so song. Yeah. the songs were good enough for me to remember some of them and be intrigued. But yeah, the, the whole night was dominated by everything Babe Assistant said that night was just captivating to me. Right. But her <laughs> ripping on James was like a huge yeah. thing. I remember the bit lasted for a long time. Oh yeah. 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 So that's, that's my James wonder story, man. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm really interested in, in the choice, you know, just kind of, cause I know your background with this band is, this was a fairly important band here. I remember you really enjoyed yeah. the two albums growing up, you know? It was. I, so, you know, and, and that's, I, I guess my thing on this is, you know, I had, I had my first band that I was in, in uh, junior high school and we were called flocks P H L O X. And, uh, you know, we sucked, but we, but we like, didn't suck that bad. You know, we had like three songs and, you know, we just played them over and over again because we couldn't come up with any more, you know, for like a seventh grade band, we were all right. And we had some drummer problems, you know, like every other band. But my sort of, you know, co-mate in this band was this guy named Joe. And he was great. He was a very, still is, I'm sure, a very intelligent fella. Like he was sort of, I think he was in a different gear than everyone else in terms of being observant and being social and being creative and these type of things. Very mature guy, very smart. And uh, great guy to be in a band with. He was the guitar player. I was the bass player. And so there were two things that Joe was just obsessed with. And the first was Led Zeppelin and basically Jimmy Page that he just wanted to have just serious man love with. And the second was James and Tim Booth, who he also, I think, was interested in the same amount of man love with. And we would um, because everyone who's into Zeppelin is heavily into James. I mean, what you hear that combination all the time. It was very Joe, wasn't it? You knew Joe. It was. Like, yeah, he was yeah. that kind of guy. It was like you know, very um, intelligent. I would say. So what we would do, we would I'd go over to his house and we'd like try to write a song for four hours and we'd fail, and then we'd be like, you know, I just watch song remains the same, <laughs> or or uh, you want to just like watch the like James video. Cause he had a video a VHS and it was, um, it was their, their UK video collection and sit down the song you reference, which really is an awesome song. Timeless. I think was them playing the song with these clips of them playing at these very large festival crowds. Right. And which probably were at G max and some of these other areas that they had played by then. And it was like, wow, these guys are big. You know, they're playing for big crowds. Like this is a, this is a big single. People were singing along in the crowd. It was like, you know, you got a sense for it. 
And this was right around the time that Laid came out. So, um, but I remember Joe not being that into Laid. I think probably because they became popular, you know, or maybe he liked all the other songs, but not that one. But, you know, that first album and this one by that time had been out and it was, they were a band that I kind of, it was one, an early example of a band that I kind of felt like, and this was again before Laid hit that, you know, I kind of knew about that a lot of others didn't, you know, it's like these guys are from England and they're really popular there, but they're not popular here. But yeah, they're sort of exotic. They were sort of exotic. Yeah, right? they yeah. were, they were yeah. different. And, and, you know, you, you'll, you know, we'll hear it as we dig into seven here shortly, but um, at the time it was something different from the, what was starting to become a little bit formulaic in hindsight sort of grunge approach and how those songs sounded and how they were produced and how they were composed and how they were executed. And this was something different, you know, uh, by the way, flocks never made it just in case anybody was wondering. I disagree as one who was at the 1994 talent show <laughs> at West middle school. I well, was, was there. Our, I was there. Well, that was our peak. Now you got to remember that we were supposed to have a concert at a birthday party and um, we got all set up and everything. And then we couldn't uh, get power out to the stage. So we just didn't play. We, <laughs> that was it. We had technical difficulties and that was pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> when, when that show didn't work out, it was out in some field at a birthday party. Um, it was very love burger from can't hardly wait. It was like, we just couldn't get started. No, just couldn't just couldn't get the show underway, you know. Anybody order a love burger? Well done. Well done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, T, it's it's kind of right up there with the Sex Pistols at Free Trade Hall when you think about flocks at the West Middle School talent show in 1994. <laughs> hey, you know? by the way, that talent show, you know, one of the things so you remember flocks. I remember your drum solo. Yeah. Nubs did this. <laughs> Nubs did this like amazing drum. So you got in the kit at this talent show and he had a whole, he had a whole structure planned. It was like, it was very, it was very nubs. It was very organized. And it was like, and he was like screwing with the crowd. He was playing it up. It was great. It was, it was like everybody it was, you know, the, everyone went wild. I, I think they went a little wilder for your drum solo than they did us playing, you know, the same riff over and over again for five minutes. They probably did, but your, your performance was pretty notorious as well, because I remember Afterwards, someone coming up to me and saying, man, does your brother get dizzy while he plays? Because I don't know if you remember, but your move was to just go in a circle. The yeah. whole, you were walked in a circle the whole yeah. time while you played. Yeah, I was it was doing very like showman-like, though. Was, people liked it. Well, I was doing the Maynard thing. You know, when we, we oh, saw Tool on yeah. Undertow, he was doing the circular walk. And I, I was like, I'm going to do that, too. Oh, well, you know what? That answers it. I've wondered for years. So that, yeah. that's where you got that. It's really stupid. The biggest thing I had to avoid tripping over my cord, you know, for <laughs> yeah, your cable, like my cable into yeah. my base, which was probably <laughs> out of tune at the time. Yeah. All right. Well, let's listen to something that, uh, that wasn't terribly out of tune and, and was quite well produced. And that is tonight's album, James seven. Let's put the needle on the record, buddy. Well, I, I really think that this one kicks off with, uh, you know, and I think that this is a common theme throughout is, you know, which of these songs kind of really hold up well today? Because this is 1992. This is 30 years ago. And oftentimes what you're trying to do is put some of these songs a little bit in the context of their time, but also 
you know, really assess what holds up really nicely um, as you listen to it, where we sit today. And I think that this not only is one of the best songs of the early 90s here to kick off seven, but, you know, I think that it's one that holds up incredibly well. And that is the single Born of Frustration. And it's uh, it's really tough to pick a section from that one because <laughs> there's a lot of great ones. Yeah, Maestro um, had his work cut out for him on that one. That's <laughs> I think the end would, would be would be for me. I don't, I don't know. It's, yeah, you're right, that, it's hard to pick. And that's sort of what that's leading up to. And you get the the trumpet and the sort of all the elements kind of coming in with that melody that sort of takes you through the chorus pieces, but. I mean, the intro's awesome. Uh, you know, Booth is kind of doing his, you know, kind of woo, 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 kind of falsetto stuff. And if that gets on your nerves, you're not going to like it. But if it doesn't, boy, it's really, really cool. Um, this is a dynamic song of its time. I got to think that when James fans popped in seven and heard this, you know, they knew that they were getting something that was very richly produced and, and, and in an essence, you know, designed not to be at a small club in Manchester, but to be at a large arena, uh, you know, in London or even in the States. Now, but, you know, I don't know if you agree. I, I really think that this is one of the finest songs of, of kind of the early 90s here in Born of Frustration. It's not overstated at all. I totally agree. And it's, it shows you that this band was ready to go to the next level. I think that's what this album is all about. It's about James going to that next level. Because if you listen to the records before, you know, they're thinner. The compositions aren't as polished. I wouldn't call Born of Frustration commercial necessarily, but it has commercial potential. Unlike th- those first couple James records are pretty, you know, they're fairly out there and they're fairly indie. This is this band, I think, finding its, its stride. It's a tremendous kickoff, you know, and it's a very complete song, perfect composition, great beginning, great ending. And what's in the middle is is very tasty as well. So yeah, it's definitely not overstated, man. It's one of the better songs of the, of the decade for sure. Well, they came to the States to record a video for this song in LA and Jim got the guitar player. Um, he, he was, it was like the day before they were set to record. He, um, he got mugged like by gunpoint in LA and basically was like, screw this. Like I'm, I'm leaving. I'm out. He just said, I just want to go back home. Like, I guess pretty rattled by the experience. Not surprising. So in the video, James's tour manager is actually standing in on guitar. Uh, Most people probably didn't even notice, but uh, that was because, you know, Gott had uh, gone back to England because he uh, had been mugged in Los Angeles the day before the recording. So kind of an interesting deal there. Song two, another one that's uh, pretty notable. Uh, you know, and, and get gets to some of these catchy elements that you get throughout seven, and that's ring the bells. A 
lot of really um, pretty layers and progressions here. And, and, you know, that comes from, obviously, there's a lot of keyboard, there's the trumpet, and there are these vocal elements, which obviously take you out of Ring the Bells just the same as they did Born of Frustration. Now, I, I don't love this song, but I think one of the things that it really demonstrates is the Kiss approach, which, again, was God's approach to composition, which was keep it simple. It's a simple progression. There's nothing to it, but it almost seems like uh, kind of the ultimate example on seven of taking something that's basically flocks could have come up with back in uh, seventh grade, right? Mm-hmm. From the standpoint of not being complicated, not keep being complex and being pretty straightforward. But then what do you, how do you build on top of that, right? What layers do you take during this outro that we just sort of were getting to? And, and how do you treat the choruses and how do you make them memorable? And you know, I think that Ring the Bells in track two uh, does a pretty good job of that. And it kind of sustains some of the energy that you get from track one there. They are keeping it simple in terms of composition, no doubt. And they do throughout the whole record. The, the layers, though, are incredibly complex. This, this could yeah. not have been an easy album to mix. And they did a great job with it. This also opens the door, though, for T, where, where James gets trouble for me, which is Tim Booth's voice. Yeah, I love his presence. I love the frontman aspect. I, I really get into what this band's doing musically. Yeah. But his vocals do not, they just don't do it for me in a variety of ways. I, even just his bass singing voice, I just don't like that much. I, if you're going to do the tinny British thing, then give me Pet Shop Boys, right? You and I are both, I think, pretty big Pet Shop Boys fans. I, I, that's fair to say, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, huge. And Neil Tennant's voice is tinny and high end and like, but it's also so great, right? So it's not like I'm against the style of vocal. It's just something about the sound that Tim Booth's throat makes. It's just, it, I don't know, man. It's hard for me to connect with. It becomes a distraction for me. So I need to, I, when I listen to James, I need to see really focused on what's going on with the music. Cause I, I just, I don't know, man. How, do you have the same thing or do you, I mean, do you get into his voice pretty consistently? I definitely get it. I mean, I, I think that his voice is very distinctive and I like it and I like the falsetto and I like, you know, I think sometimes, you know, him using his voice as an instrument is good. I, I definitely see that though. I mean, listen, I, you know, these guys have a big catalog and there are moments where it's like, all right, Tim, calm down. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no question about it, but let's see what you think of track three, because this is a very musically driven song. This was the lead single. Now it clocks in at six minutes, 40. They shorten it down for its, you know, radio airplay. But this is one that if you're into the ambiance and you're into more of the musicality and atmosphere of James, then you're probably going to really like this one. It's a song that a lot of James fans really love called Sound. So again, you put this in the context of, you know, you just got done listening to Nirvana and you just got done listening to Pearl Jam. And then you put this on. It's it's it was very different. It was very creative, very unique. So I do think it's a sound that really, again, there's a lot of festival rock kind of elements to this, you know, to your earlier point. But, you know, of its time and even now. I think that there's some cool atmosphere here. There's some cool, you know, and again, it's part of this Manchester element where you do have some 
beats and you do have some things that are, um, I suppose, danceable in a way, but not in a way where it's a, you know, this isn't Happy Mondays where it's clearly a club sound. You know, this is much more of a musical, uh, atmospheric sound, but something that still has some pretty strong beats in it with, you know, many of which just like on sound are electronic. So what do you think of this one? Yeah, it's, I, first of all, perfectly said in terms of your analysis, sound is a triumph. It's a triumph for nineties music. I think it's this with born of frustration kind of shows you why this record is something to, uh, to, to give a shot at because this band was doing this at the time without really caring much about commerciality and listen it was the lead single i mean i know obviously cut down version but that shows you the attitude of this group and that that's why so many other bands like them you mentioned kind of the you know their connection and the touring they did with some other groups duran duran as we talked about i mean they were sort of musicians musicians right in the same way that a comedian we just lost one of them with norm Macdonald, right so sad about it i know there's this term comedians comedian where, you know, you're actually the comedian who comedians like to enjoy and and get and understand. James is a little bit of that. They're kind of a musician's musician in a way. And sound really proves that it also, it's Tim Booth pulling from his own future playbook, but you know, with the, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah. Yeah, he knew. I mean, we would karaoke that, but my throat already hurts from those three seconds. Exactly. There's no doubt. I mean, he, you know, he's an artist and a vocalist, not a singer, I think is the best way to frame that up. You know, that that sort of driving beat you get in sound. I mean, this would become pretty replicated. You you look at, you know, some of the stuff that Stone Roses were doing, even like a song like Columbia by Oasis, like this driving, pulsating kind of mid-tempo beat is something that, you know, I think it's cool to hear on sound that they took this thing that really was club driven uh, and, and are making it rock driven, you know, and I think that's part of what this intrigue of this album is taking a lot of these different elements and sort of putting them into a hybrid that's a little bit more digestible than some of the Manchester uh, production was at the time. Track four, bring a gun. Now, I think this is a good spot where Tim is not trying to do too much, right? I mean, you're talking about a chorus with kind of a single note ring out and some really cool stuff going on underneath it. The horns, the synths, I think it all really works here. I don't really like the verses as much because they're a little choppy, but I'll tell you what, getting to that chorus and smoothing things out with that long vocal line and the progression taking place underneath it. I really like it. I I think this is actually one of my favorite moments on the record, Uh, more so the chorus than the verses. And then it leads to a really cool upbeat, but atmospheric outro. My issue with this song, first of all, I'm a little surprised that, that, that it connects as much with you because I think it lacks emotion. It has to do with the tempo, you know, and I, it's a genre thing. I think I I just don't get into up tempo for the sake of being bouncy without some kind of like melodic power to it. It's not that I don't like up-tempo music by any means, but 
there's something about this song that just void of emotion or feeling. It sounds like it was constructed to sound a certain way and therefore they went with it. The one thing I, the irony of that though, I actually really like Booth's vocal here though. It fits perfectly. And I think that what you see is that the element where his voice actually connects best when the band is kind of up-tempo and fun. The issue is they're not up-tempo and fun very often. I mean, usually it's more of a spacey, I would say dreary, but more of a melancholy sort of approach that the band takes. I think it's a good example of a song that really isn't great on paper that youth grabbed and made it really good. You know, I mean... There are cool production elements. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to play an acoustic version of bring a gun and like blow anybody away. Right. In fact, probably the opposite. But I I agree with you. I think Tim kind of laid off on the vocals, which I, you know, I suspected you'd appreciate. And, uh, and I think it's one where the production on it is almost perfect. Yeah. I I agree with that. I think it's, if you're going to teach somebody about production and uh, specifically about youth's production, Yeah, I would say that uh, Bring a Gun is a good place to start. Here's a short ditty, track five, Mother. So this is two and a half minutes. Um, You know, it's kind of almost sounds like more of an interlude than anything. And obviously it's a little bit more dreary, a little bit more slow, a little bit more atmospheric. I I don't think much of it just because it's, uh, you know, kind of, it almost feels like they're just trying to calm you down a little bit. Um, A lot of fans really love this atmospherically, emotionally spacey. There is some good space here. I mean, I get, I get the appeal and and I, and I get why it's kind of a good, you know, uh, thing to put in the middle of the record. Um, But uh any thoughts on mother? I, I think you and I are just going to zigzag the whole episode because I love mother. I think it's great. You, <laughs> you did a good job on the clip maestro, but near the end of that clip, when that guitar, I hate to call it a solo, but that guitar kind of line comes in Yeah, and there's an extra layer of synth that gets dropped on it as well. You end up with this really nice blend of these different elements. That's really beautiful. But again, now you've got a nice bed for Tim's voice to do what it's doing, which is more somber. Yeah, a little, a little maybe overly serious at times, shortened to the point, but really effective in that layering and the way it builds. You know, I just like, the, I like, you know, you and I both love songs that build. And to me, in two minutes and 40 seconds, the song has a nice little build to it. So, do you have this on wax? Is that how you listen to it? Nope. Nope. I only have this uh, on digital. Okay. Cause I was curious of what a song like this sounds on vinyl i assume it's on vinyl hey we'll find out at the end if it's something you're gonna add to the library who knows before that though we're gonna kick off the uh, the back half of the album here with the other long piece don't wait that long So it's a slow jam, obviously. Um, it does kind of build and it does, uh, you know, kind of add layers as it goes on. I think it's a little long. Um, I don't think it's one that needed to be six minutes 40, but I like the groove. I like the way it builds. I kind of wish this song had real drums. And I think there are a couple instances of that on the record where 
you'd get a better groove and sort of a more meaningful, you know, kind of reception to what they're doing if these were acoustic drums. Um, and I think Don't Wait That Long is a good example of it. So I, I love the idea of it. And I actually like most of the execution of it, but it's a little long. And I think it could have really benefited in this case from shifting away from electronica. I agree with all that. I also would say it suffers from a very weak melody, the vocal line. Uh, yeah. The melody, the vocal, I think is there's a lot of potential, just unreached potential is what I would say for this song. Too long considering the fact that the vocal line is, is not interesting and not a great fit for what's going on underneath it uh, melodically. Yeah, I think we're kind of on the same page all in all there. Track seven, Live a Life of Love. some cool stuff going on here nubs let's talk about the trumpet because it's a big part of this um and andy diagram you know was added to the band uh on the album previous gold mother and you know they used him a little bit but he kind of came into the seven project saying listen i want to be more involved in composition in uh performance like you know or else i'm gonna go do something else i'm kind of glad that he did that because i think that this adds a really important unique layer to seven and if you look at listen to their whole catalog it's certainly the record where this this trumpet layer is pronounced do you like it i know obviously being a phil collins guy you know horns and these type of things earth wind and fire horns and all that are something that i know that you've liked at times do you think that it's a nice layer here that gives it some uniqueness or do you find it sort of irritating or that it was too much or what are are your thoughts on kind of that particular piece of instrumentation on seven I love it. I, I think it adds a complete interest value. I don't think it's annoying at all. The only thing annoying to me is that by the time I saw him on the tour in 94, he was not in the band. And by the way, amazing name, Andy Diagram. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. Great name. Yeah. Well, they got Booth and Diagram. I mean, it's, <laughs> exactly. You know, pretty awesome. Yeah. So I, when I saw them play, he wasn't in the band. I think I would have been even more interested if he was. And I think he eventually came back into the fold. But, uh, no, I think the trumpet's one of the coolest parts of the album, man. I, I think you take the trumpet out and you have a, a way less fascinating work for sure. So no, not annoying at all. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that again, of its time, it, you know, this wasn't like jumping on a fad. This was, you know, doing something cool and different and sort of unique uh, for a band like this to really kind of bring an acoustic trumpet into the mix. And I think it, I think it pretty much works in all cases across the board. And I think live a life of love is an okay song, but the back half of it is really good. And it's really because of diagrams playing and that kind of solo and that sort of progression that he's doing that sort of takes you in and out throughout places of the song, particularly the ending. Uh, the next track is next lover. Yes, So it has this this waltzy jig to it. And James did this a lot, you know, and I don't, you know, there, there are some 
sort of English type elements to it, certainly. And it's a little cheeky in those ways. Um, but I love what it does at, as this sort of um, post chorus bridge where the drums start to ring out and everything kind of rings. I, I actually think it, it works pretty well. Um, so this isn't a song that's going to blow anybody away, but I like kind of the waltzy jig that then takes you into something that builds up and is pretty atmospheric. Again, these are unique approaches. This is stuff that a lot of bands weren't, you know, doing at the time. And, and I think next lover is kind of a nice little tune. Nub, what do you think? Not a big fan of the, the waltzy jig from rock bands in general. And I, you know, calling dreams of rock bands by kind of a stretch, but I don't dig that. Now I, you see it a lot though. A lot of English bands become very influenced by Irish music and culture. I don't know if any of the members had ties to being Irish, but that's very common, right? For English bands to have ties to that. And so I don't know. I'd, yeah. I'd rather this band do what its strength is, which is space, creativity, and trying to create layers of complex sounds that are simple melodically. And, and when you get into the jig thing, it's the same reason I hate country music or that I hate blues music because it has to sound a certain way. You know, right. it's got to have this rhythm and this melody. And I, I despise music that follows some sort of formula. Jigs tend to do that. So yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of this one really for those reasons. Getting toward the end here, track nine, Heavens. Dude, it, it, quintessential Madchester beat. Dude, dude, I mean, every Madchester band that's has exactly. that running through their albums constantly. That's exactly right. Um, I don't love the song until the ending, you know, which is kind of where we were just at. And again, the outros on the, I think this album as a whole are really strong. I think they're special. Know? I agree. Yeah. yeah so sometimes it takes a little bit to get there, but. Boy, when you get all those layers working and you get kind of Booth turning the voice back into an instrument, you get some really memorable moments here. And I think that's uh, part of what you get, in, at least in the last minute or so there of Heavens. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that completely. Again, the build, building towards the conclusion. Yeah. James were masters at that during this era. Again, we talked about it, man. This band is really at its peak on this record. And youth brings that out of them too, I think. I think he... As much as he helped with sonic uh, layers and things like that, I think that he probably also helped this band build those songs to these pinnacles that, that this album became so famous for. So, yeah, I think you're right. And I think they did sort of get away from that a bit, even, you know, post laid, you know, they, they decided that they didn't need to have these crescendo sort of more epic endings. And I kind of wish they would have gotten back to it because I think it really worked on seven. The second to last track is track 10, Protect Me. So again, it's a pretty elementary song. This is not, you know, this is not rocket science here. It's a, it's a three, four with probably the most basic, you know, sort of ballad progression you'll ever hear in pop music uh, with a rather simple vocal melody. But again, you know, when you start bringing in the horns and bringing in the other elements there's some nice keys here. It's good. I, I don't love this song. Um, you know, again, I, I think it's a little waltzy. 
it's a little bit expected. You know, I think this is sort of where James became a little bit predictable. Like you knew what play they were going to run, but you know, again, the production elements and the instrumentation elements at least make it interesting. And I think that's again part of what's so interesting about this whole record is taking things that are so simple, but making them pleasing and interesting to the ear by a variety of elements related to production instrumentation and the, the trumpet and the keyboard sounds and those things all, all contribute. Funny that you felt the waltz. Cause I didn't on this one. It's there. You're, you're totally accurate, but I missed it. I think because dude, I just, the song is saved by the trumpet. I mean, it just, it just got, you know, like trumpet, you know what I mean? It's like comes out of nowhere, you know? I yeah. Just, yeah. I love totally. it. I love it. It's so interesting. Actually, from a composition standpoint, I think it's one of the better songs on the record. I, and, and this is one of those rare examples too, where I think lyrically it enhances the song, you know, there's, especially during the chorus. I mean, just uh, words and ideas that are being sung, I think, boost the song a little bit. So, no, I, I really like Protect Me. It's, it's like, this would be in the upper tier of uh, songs on this album for me. We continue to differ on this one, T. You know, (laughs) (laughs) well, let's see. Let's see if we align on the closing title track, which I think is magnificent. And that's seven. Um, I, I don't know what else to say other than that. I, I just think this song is, is, um, special, you know, it's a, it's an emotional song for me and boy, is this album bookended? Well, I mean, uh, one of the best bookended albums, I think perhaps ever, um, when you kick off with born of frustration and close with seven, I think closing with the title tracks really neat. You know, there weren't a lot of bands that were sort of doing that and thinking that way. This song obviously had a lot of appeal. And I think putting it last was so cool. This could have easily been track three or, you know, even track two. But I think they were really doing something here by, you know, not making this album lopsided and being able to sort of diversify. And in this case, putting probably the best song on the album, even though it competes pretty heavily with track one, in my opinion there at the end it's a song that i will never get tired of it's pretty quick and to the point too i mean it's it's less than three and a half minutes it's not trying to do too much um i think it's very thoughtful the way they treat the ending of that repetition of the sort of main hook the layers that build i mean that keyboard we heard a little bit of it in that layer is is newman-esque it just sounds terrific as sort of a building block the trumpet is perfect in this title track I, uh, I love it. So do we differ on this one? I'm not, now my fingers are crossed here. Let's see. <laughs> it's a magnificent song. It's, it's a glorious piece of music, right? I mean, I, I could see why it connects with you so much emotionally. It's so glorious that it makes up for, in my opinion, Tim Booth's worst performance on the album, just purely vocally. <laughs> I absolutely. Now to the credit of the band, you know, you and I could sing this song and everybody knows how good a singer we are <laughs> and have it be just fine because it's, it's that good of a structure. It's, it's that good of a melody. It's that powerful of a rhythm, but I got to tell you, man, I don't, I don't think he nails it on this song at all. In fact, I think it's, I honestly, I would probably say it's one of his two or three worst performances 
on the album. So it's, it's, I like though that he doesn't get in the way. Like he's sort of sitting back and letting the song do its thing. And we, we all know, and you mentioned it earlier. I mean, sometimes Tim wasn't great at that. I love part of what I love about the song is to your exact point is that it's understated vocally. It's staying in the back seat and letting the song and the musicality drive it. So I agree with you completely, but I see that as a good thing, not a bad thing. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And, and you know what? It's a great perspective because now I can, I can think of it that way and enjoy the song even more, <laughs> but, but I totally understand your, your kind of love for it, you know, it, and putting it last is undoubtedly cool. It shows so much confidence from the band, but it also shows, you know, tremendous amount of thoughtfulness in terms of the sequence. We've always talked on the podcast about the importance of sequence. And, and again, like the band and like the sound and like the production and everything we've touched on, the sequence also is interesting. And that's, that's a word that anybody could use for James, no matter what. Well, nubs that wraps it up. And uh, yeah, it was kind of an interesting, different choice, uh, but I'm really looking forward to your thoughts on it. So did it matter? You know what? There's a, there's kind of a trio of albums from James that matter and it's, it's seven and it's laid and it's gold mother. To me, those, those three records combined probably have, you know, sort of an important place, which were three in a row, by the way. Yeah. And then of course, gold mother has sit down on it. So I've already, I've already expressed my deep love for that song. (laughs) So I think together that that part of the catalog matters. I wouldn't say any of them individually matter. And Laid is an album that I, I, I'll just tell you right. Now, I would put Laid in the for sale bit because I think I, I think it's an important album. I think it matters. It's got an intriguing hit single from the 90s on it. But as an album, it's like this thing that never quite takes off. And remember, Eno is on Laid. I was going to say that says something from you that I know because um, yeah. Eno's all over that one. He's all over. And that might be part of the problem. You know, I mean, I'm a gigantic Coldplay fan, but honestly, my my least favorite Coldplay albums are the ones that Eno was on. My favorite U2 album is an album that Eno didn't touch, you know, so yeah. huh. I love Brian Eno, the solo artist. I love Brian Eno the you know guy who kind of goes in and works with bands and I love what he stands for, but I haven't always loved his production. I mean, I could, you know, and this is a good example of that when you talk about Laid. So raw creativity, didn't care about commercial success. And for that reason, they became pretty commercially successful. And that's a great story for anybody, for anybody creative, anybody artistic to learn from. So in that sense, I'd say it matters, but, but only as kind of a collection of those three together. So I don't know. T, what do you think? Did seven matter? You know, it probably doesn't in terms of, I mean, you don't hear a lot of people really referring to this record with a lot of acclaim. I mean, I mentioned earlier that you do see some hindsight reviews that are very positive, but this was pretty polarizing for a lot of fans of the band and fans of the the Manchester scene of basically, you know, in some cases, considering it a, a sellout record or a, you know, you two simple minds rip off how good are simple minds, by the way. Um, and and so, you know, it wasn't um, sort of lauded and praised uh, by any means by all critics and all fans. Um, I, I do think, though, that if you revisit it today and give it a top to bottom chance that you're hearing a lot of things that you have to appreciate in the context of 1992, the instrumentation, the layering, the production, the approach, the di- sort of diverse sounds, uh, the trumpet element, um, the, the unique vocal element that in, in, in most cases works. 
Um, I, I think those are all things that, you know, if one were to kind of sit down and say, what's a good album from the early nineties that maybe wasn't, you know, on the radio a lot in the U S but sort of defines what was coming out of England at the time and in a band sort of trying to evolve its way into something that was crawling out of sort of a scene that it was a part of and into something that's a bit more mainstream and a bit more commercial and a bit more digestible, you know, seven's going to be a great choice. Now, I don't know how many people will make that choice and I don't know how many people, I mean, certainly there are still a lot of people that realize that this band's still active and they're still around and they've been doing it for 30 plus years. And you always have to respect that longevity. So I, I, you know, I don't think that it's one that is probably toward the top of the list. You know, if you're going to play an album for your kids, that kind of shows them what the early nineties were like. I do think it'd be a great choice. Unfortunately, I'm not sure it will be a choice for many. So I'm not sure that I, you know, we can say that it necessarily matters sort of in the grand scheme, but I think it was doing a lot of things at the time that make it one that, you know, should be revisited and should eventually matter more than it does today. And we'll see, you never know, time will tell, but I think uh, it's important too. I, I love your, your uh, thoughts on that. You got to think a little bit globally at some point, right? Like we, we are, you know, two guys from the Northern U S and to comment on the album, to comment on any album that didn't make a lot of noise in the U S but probably was, you know, incredibly impactful to audiences in the UK is something you got to consider. So, you know, d- does it matter to, uh, you know, the Detroit area, you know, probably not. But if we ask that question in the UK to 40 something music fans, I bet you we would get a totally different response. And so the thing I like about your take too, I think it takes that into account. You know, it's a big world out there musically. And this band meant a lot more to certain regions of the world than it did to necessarily ours. I think it's a great point. And, and I agree with you. I mean, you know, we're just, we're just two bumpkins from the Midwest. I mean, what the hell do we know? Right. We're, we're just two twins in a shower, you know, what yeah, right, you know yeah. right? who, the, who the hell are we? All right, now let's get to the final cut here, buddy. Is this uh, on the turntable in the collection, collecting dust or in the for sale bin? Where are you putting seven by the band James, buddy? I've got a collecting dust and I'll tell you, this is the only James album that would not be in the for sale bin. And, and the reason why, is it's a great marriage of producer and band that allowed this band to hit its peak. I do think this is peak James, no doubt T. You know, when you look at Born of Frustration, when you look at the title track, sound oh. though, is that that's the moment to me where it's like, okay, I, I, you know, I'm not taking this album to the for sale bin. It's a lot to take in with Tim Booth's voice top to bottom, right? So that's why it's collecting dust. I still have fundamental problems with his voice. But you could see through that with, with just kind of the excellence that you hear sonically from most of these tracks. And so, uh, yeah, for me, it's collecting dust. Where do you got seven? Where, what is your final cut? You know, man, I, I haven't put anything on the turntable in some time now, and I'm putting this one on the turntable. I think it's just excellent. Um, you know, even the sort of deeper cuts and the, uh, you know, sort of the valleys within the record are still really interesting and still very listenable. And, and I don't think there's really a a dull point. I mean, we went through the track by track and neither of us at any point kind of said, yeah, this is a throwaway. Um, Some tracks are better than others. Some moments are better than others, but I think it's a, I I do think that it's one that if you really want to get back to what, where things were at in this crazy period where hair bands were leveling off and pop was leveling off, and grunge was coming in 
and and sort of what was coming out of the UK at the time in this post Manchester scene and you know the, the uniqueness of some of these instrumentation elements that a, a, that really a band in the US at the time wouldn't have done um because everyone was going in the direction of either stripping down or just being sort of straightforward rock or bare bones or minimalist or whatever it may be this is anything but mi- minimalist but in the context of the early 90s at this time, I think it really works. It's by far their best album. I mean, I don't think there's another James record I would even consider putting on the turntable. But listen, you go bookended, Born of Frustration and Seven. You know, you've got some really good elements in the middle. Sound is a triumph. I agree with you. Very innovative at the time. So listen, I think it's a really solid album top to bottom with some really special moments, you know, particularly track one, track three and the closer. And when you combine all those elements, you know, whether you love every moment or love every song, it's one that I'm going to be listening to for a while. And it's one that I don't really want to pick songs from. I want to listen to the whole thing. I think there's an atmosphere and an approach uh, and sort of a vision, if you will, of the entire record top to bottom in terms of how it's produced, how it's executed, and these sort of weaving themes, particularly provided by, you know, Andy Diagram on the trumpet. I think are just a very pleasant listen. It's a record that I think for me at least will hold up over time very nicely. And I'm going to throw it on the uh, turntable, buddy. I think love it's it, been, man. Love it. Been many episodes since I've done so. So it has uh, been a while since you, I mean, what have you been listening to? Nothing just like the air. <laughs> I mean, it finally got some on your turntable here. Too much new music, I think. <laughs> Too much uh, festival rock is what yeah, it is. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Maybe my diving into festival rock of recent made Seven seem better than it actually is. But uh, See, was Seven your album of the year in 1992? Looking at your wall. It was not. Um, that was uh, taken over by Dirt. Yeah, yeah. But seven, how could I, it not be? <laughs> I think Seven was certainly up there, probably the runner-up. It must have been. It but, must have been I up mean, there for you. Yeah, yeah dirt, Dirt's tough to beat, Yeah. So another band we got to talk about. All right, buddy. Hey, let's get down to it here and let's uh, cool down the episode with some in your head. Nubbins, what do you got? Oh, I just interrupted myself. Oh, what do you got, buddy? (laughs) First would be the song Slide by Torch. This is off the latest Torch album, which is... I, I thought you were going to say the Goo Goo Dolls slide. Oh, I hate the Goo Goo Dolls slide. <laughs> yeah, I know. I can't stand that song, dude. Yeah, it's not too good. That was, And I'm, I'm a fan of the Goo Goo Dolls, but that was one of those, yeah. ones, right when they released it, I was like, this song blows. But don't yeah. you kind of like that, you know, just do the, put your arms around me. <laughs> what you see is what you are and what you are is beautiful. Oh, man. You want to get married <laughs> and run away. <laughs> I cringe. Oh, away. I mean, come like on. cringiest yeah. moments in music ever is when he sings, want to get married. It's yeah. Like, like, what is that? God. You could have come up with something better than that there, Johnny. I love that I, album. Too. I do it's love the great Google. record. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, he's Johnny Resnick's great, but, but that yeah, song that was, is awful. Yeah. No, this is a little different slide. This is, this is a, okay. uh, this is torch, man. You know, hard rock goodness. Indeed. Secondly would be, you know, Neil Peart or Pert as we really call oh. him here on the podcast. You know, he, no, I'm sad. I know we're still kind of mourning his passing, but the other day caravan came on, which is the, the, last opening track that he played on for rush off of clockwork angels. And that song is a jam and Neil's awesome on it. So caravan by Russia. Then lastly would be uh, 
Don't tell me what love can do. The lead single Ooh, off Van yeah. Halen's balance. <laughs> because here, here, I'll give it to you. Right? Ka. Two. Yeah. Like Alex comes in with his giant bag. That song's awesome. The ending is sweet. Yeah. It's so good. It's probably the grittiest thing they did, you know, especially later. And great uh, chorus too. You, I mean, you, you guys don't even need to listen to the song now. You can just hear us. Yeah, we're, we're terrific give, it single. Terrific single. And remember, see, life is balance. Balance. Yeah, yeah life balance is song. balance. You know, so <laughs> there's some really good moments on balance. Oh, look, there's good moments in every Van Hagar album. I mean, you know, they're fantastic. So. uh there you go, T. What that's with in my head? What is in your head? Well, I'm going to go with "See the World" by Brett Denon. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, I heard that rips off uh, another song. Didn't Have you? Did you listen to it after after the episode? Did you Did you give it a full go? No, but some of our listeners oh. reached out, and listener Gene, who and I should shout out, he's a great listener. You know, Gene, oh from yeah, the, great guy. The, you know, uh, Gene from the Middle Aged Men podcast. Middle Aged Men, that's right. Yeah, you know, yeah. we 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 transpod. Well, they had Middle Aged Men had you on. I mean, Gene, what the hell? What what am I? You know? <laughs> yeah. My chopped liver. My, well, you can't have me on your podcast. Come on. Gene reached out and said how much he loved the Brett Denon bit. Did he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he loved it. Nice. And we love Gene. But uh, yeah, yeah. No, I have not. I've worked really hard to not listen to. Uh, well, maybe that's that good. It just sort of makes you angry. I'm still salty. Um, I, I got a couple of jammy. You know, we're winding down the summer here, right? So I'm just trying to get in a little bit last minute jammy stuff. Widespread panic doing a little ribs and whiskey. One of my favorite summer late summer songs uh fish i i've been listening to the fish radio on sirius satellite a ton it's a great channel you know sometimes those channels like they become repetitive and they play the same old you know the songs on repeat or they're very like you can tell that there's a robot you know in charge they're playing shows from the night before two nights before you know and I'm really becoming a fan of fish radio. So punch you in the eye would be the uh, fish song that I'm into right now. We'll go see fish. Yeah. I can go, go, go see fish. <laughs> go see yeah. Fish, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the last song is just a beauty and yet another band we should talk about someday. I think I've said that many times today. I hope you're writing this down. Um, and that's talk, talk and them doing life is what you make it, which is just, Oh God. Unbelievably good. good. Jeez, just unfairly good song. Unfairly good. Just that's the same as many of the, the work of uh, Mark, uh, Mark Hollis, just freaking genius. The uh, late Mark Hollis, the late Mark Hollis. I know another sad one. And and I'm glad you mentioned Norm MacDonald. We, you know, we, uh, we here at two twins and tech are, uh, <laughs> extremely sad by the passing of, of yeah. Norm, which was actually yeah. just announced yesterday as we record this today. And, Boy, what a genius. And, uh, you know, definitely be uh, combing YouTube over the next few days. Uh, certainly, I think one of the most intelligent, you know, comedy minds uh, of our time. And and certainly somebody that I was a huge fan of, Nubs. I know you were too. And we're, we're bummed out about that one. But, uh, but hey, listen, you can never judge a book by its cover. Except Mein Kampf. <laughs> so... Rest in peace, Norm. He was Nub. the greatest, man. He was the greatest. Nub, another intelligent mind of our time is you, buddy. And uh, thank mm. you for diving into this one. I know this was a unique choice. I probably you, I probably floated it over and you were like, huh? 
But, you know, maybe after we talked about it just now, uh, maybe you understand a little bit of where I was headed. And uh, I hope you still like me. I most certainly do. And I. Okay, good. good. Let me check with the judges. I do still like you. Okay, yeah, thanks, I buddy. Do. Yeah. yeah. Well done. It was, you know, it was an excellent choice, man. It was uh, fun to talk about. And we'll be back. What We didn't say what episode number was this. It was just oh, 50, yeah. 59. Oh, 59. Right? Yeah, fifty nine. So what? Because I mean, Q and A. Q and A is next. Q and A. Let's judge. Q&A. So actually, those of you that are out there listening, send us uh, if you guys have anything you want us to tackle in the Q and A, which will be next week. Good point. Q and A. Q and A, buddy. Hey, uh, thanks again, Nub. Thanks again, everybody. Uh, we love you. We love you dearly, and we appreciate you listening to uh, two twins in a shower. Uh, because you know, listen. Uh, we're here for you because showering is important. We're here to make you happy and get nice and clean in the process. We will see you next week for episode 60 Q and a, but until then we hope you enjoyed episode 59, not episode seven. It was about seven, but it's episode 59 here on two twins and an album. Y'all take care. Two twins. that's about it that's all we have i hope it wasn't too disappointing we will see you on tour until then take it easy